Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 30, Witnessing the Weakness. Why did Peter cut off that guy's ear? Why did John leave out details of Jesus' last day? And what was Pilate's intent when he asked, what is truth? This week, Steve studies Jesus' arrest and Peter's denial from chapters 18 and 19 of John's Gospel. Now we're entering into the the climactic events that John has been taking us toward really right from the beginning. We've talked about this conflict between light and darkness all the way through, but now it's, it's in overdrive. And there's an incredible momentum to this uh, that I hope we get a hold of tonight. Um, there's a, such a wide range of how we could go about this, so I, I'm going to probably do most but not all of the verses tonight because I, I'm going to look at three things. I'm going to look at the, the arrest. Uh, we're going to look at Peter's denial. It's not uh, a lot of verses. I off the top of my head, I'm not sure. I think it's probably about seven verses. But it is powerful and pivotal, and I think there's much for us to learn from it. And then the third section is going to be the, the longest section in the in the narrative is Jesus before Pilate. Um, so we've got a few key characters in this narrative tonight. There's Judas. This is the last time we see him. Um, Judas, who was, who, who only understood power in a very traditional kind of way. Judas, who we saw in chapter 13, rejected, in a final sense, rejected Christ's love. Um, it's interesting that in John's narrative, we don't hear that, you know, he, he hung himself or that he fell and, you know, his guts were still. We don't have anything. He just simply disappears after the arrest. And uh, and that's kind of indicative too, because you, you'll see that I think John isn't as as concerned with all the details of the narrative as as some key themes that he wants to really bring to the forefront um, tonight. So then we've got Peter, and Peter could not accept. Uh, witnessing Jesus' weakness in the midst of this great moment of conflict. Because yeah, he only saw, he just saw his weakness. And, um, and then he was confronted by his own profound weakness. And of course we're going to talk about that quite a bit. And the third main character is Pilate, um, who, who was like what we would call a governor now. And he we see that although he was politically quite strong, he was he was morally weak, but I think he just had an awful lot of fear in him. He, he seemed to really be afraid of, uh, of this conflict. He was afraid that somehow he would be ousted through all of this, that he'd get in trouble uh, with head office, with Rome. So those are our characters. Let's begin. <coughs> Excuse me. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to... Do uh, the arrest, which is 18, 1 to 11. After Jesus had said these things, that is, all the farewell discourse and the, the high priestly prayer. After he said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they shouted. I am he, Jesus told them. Parenthetically, we'll get into this in a minute. That he is added in this translation and in many of our modern translations. It's not there in the original language. He just said, I am. Uh, Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when he told them, I am, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then Jesus asked them again, who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. I told you, I am he. Jesus replied, so if you're looking for me... Let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you've given me. 
Remember, he said that in his prayer to the Father. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, Put away your sword. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? So let's start to go through this. Uh, as I keep saying week by week, we have in part picked the study of John's Gospel because there's such a depth of meaning. And uh, we've talked about symbolism uh, and all kinds of things. So just to remember, everything that happens, there's a surface meaning, but then there's something deeper. And we're going to start right away with that. Jesus leaves the upper room where he was with his friends. He goes out and he crosses the Kidron Valley. Now, why did John say that? Well, it's at one level because it's an historical fact. Um, if you if you head, uh, this is the way Jesus would, would go to get to the Mount of Olives and the Garden. But John mentioned it because it has a deeper symbolic significance. Do you know where the first mention of the Kidron Valley is in the Bible? It's when David had to run for his life because of Absalom's revolt. And in the night, in the darkness, when it seemed like the, the powers of darkness, represented in Absalom and, and his supporters, uh, pressed against him, he crossed the Kidron Valley. And uh, so I think that it's really important, as I've said many times, to consider in John, always, but especially I think in John, consider the setting. It is always significant with him. This whole episode that we're covering today takes place at night. And it accentuates the conflict that is now upon Jesus and the disciples. And it's a continuation, almost to the full culmination, next week we'll be at the culmination, but the continuation of the whole light versus darkness theme that is present from the very opening of John chapter 1 and goes all the way through. Um, in the prologue, just a few examples right off the bat. Verse 4, that life was the light of man. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light who gives sight to everyone. Sixteen times John talks about light. The second thing to see here in terms of setting is he's in the garden. Now, we know from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that it was uh, the Garden of Gethsemane where they pressed olives to make olive oil. But we don't know that here. He just says the garden. It's really interesting uh, to a Jewish audience at that time. They understood the garden, a garden. Uh, traditionally, it was a place of life. It was a place of peace. Um, and what we see is Jesus leaves the garden willingly. They didn't drag him out of there. It says he left. He went out himself. And uh, so again, the setting matters. There's symbolic stuff here. He's leaving the security and he's stepping right into the conflict. Now, I've taught you uh, a few times that the word that is often translated in our modern uh, translations as world is cosmos. Remember? K-O-S-M-O-S. And that is a theme we talk quite a bit about in chapter 16, that John is really talking about this uh, dichotomy, this dialectic between what he calls the world, which is actually the cosmos, and the kingdom of God. And we talked about the cosmos was the place that had uh, turned its back on God, etc. Do you guys remember that? So, I want to use the word a little more fully tonight. I'm going to come back to it quite a bit, I think. Cosmos, or world, is the, is, uh, the opposite of the reign of Christ. And this remains central all the way through tonight. John uses the theme of cosmos... Um, in, in an increased way 
It's building and building and building through the, the farewell discourse. When he says cosmos or world, it's synonymous with the powers, the, the dark powers, the powers that be. And we've talked about that before. But I want you to understand it tonight that we are getting this drama, this narrative unfolds before us, which is, it's like a play when you read it. And I've read it and read it and even listened to it before you guys came over tonight. Um, it's, this, it's this incredibly dramatic encounter between Christ and his kingdom and the cosmos, the the world separated, the world that has rejected and turned its back on God. Um, for John, I told you this a couple of weeks ago, for John, the religious Jewish system is a manifestation of the cosmos, of the powers that be. Do you remember we talked about that a little bit? Um, John sets up a distinction between two ways of living and of perceiving the world. We're really going to see this with Pilate in a few minutes. There's this distinction. One worldview uh, recognizes the reality of God and his kingdom and lives primarily uh, from that place of his, of his rule and reign and his love. The other, the cosmos, asserts its own primacy, and it hates all those who question it. This is the central theme of everything we're going to look at tonight. Here's another point we see right in the beginning of this. Jesus is in control. Judas thinks he's set this whole thing up. The soldiers think they're in control. The, the temple guards, who ironically we know from uh, John 7, they tried to arrest Jesus and failed. This time they bring a whole cohort. By the way, that's 600 Roman soldiers. Really? Yeah, it's 600. Wow. It's incredible, isn't it? So, this, we see in a lot of ways that contrary to what they think, Jesus is in control um, during his arrest. Um, <coughs> He, he made no attempt to hide from Judas where he would be. He went to what Judas knew. This is his favorite place to hang out with the guys. So he went right there. Um, he, uh, the cosmos and the powers bring 600 Roman soldiers and the temple guard because the world always rules by force and violence and the fear of violence. That's how the powers to be. That's how it works in politics. That's how it works in all kinds of areas. Thirdly, they came with weapons because they were expecting a forceful resistance, right? John describes the weapons. But Jesus says, you don't need these weapons. He disarms them with his words. The powers only understand force and violence. So this reveals how much, even after three years, Judas had profoundly misunderstood who Jesus was and what his message was and what his whole way of operating was. Frankly, he also underestimated Jesus' power, which we're going to see in just a moment. See, Judas thought, I'm going to surprise him. I'm going to set up an ambush. But, but it's impossible to surprise him. Because his entire life had prepared Jesus for this hour. This is part of the drama of tonight. Remember way back in John 12, 27, uh, he said, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. His whole life was building to this hour, and he knew it that this hour was this hour. This was the time, this was the place. No other time, no other place. It was now. And so, we, and, and another way we see uh, his control is that Jesus left the garden and he went to them. In every way, throughout this narrative, he is in control. Later we'll see that Pilate thinks he's in control and discovers he's not. Jesus is in control of the narrative. The next point in this first passage, his very identity reveals his authority and his power. 
let's talk about I am for a few minutes. And we've talked about I am before because uh, there's seven main times in this gospel up till now where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. Before Abraham was, I am. Remember uh, John 8, 53. So, John continues to express and reveal Jesus' identity as the Son of God through the phrase, I am. It's a declaration more than a phrase. Jesus, it declares Jesus is fully God. It declares that he lives in perfect unity with the Father and the Son. Imagine this scene. It's night. It's perilous. It's... And they come... And some of us were surprised a few minutes ago, I saw your faces, to realize there were probably 600 soldiers plus temple guard. And they come with all these clubs. I mean, that's pretty intimidating. Who do you look, who do you see? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. I think at that moment, it's as if the curtain between the ultimate reality of heaven and earth is lifted for just a moment when he identifies himself. And in that moment, his identity is revealed, his divine presence, his majesty, and his power. And the soldiers, right up until that moment, they thought they were in charge. But instead, they fall down before the truth of who Jesus really is. It reflects, I am reflects his revelation of himself to Moses at the burning bush. Remember we talked about that? It was God the Son who appeared again and again throughout the Old Testament. And the preeminent uh, Exodus 3.18, who do I say, send me, and tell him I am. That was the Son. That was Christ. And so uh, this reflects, when he says that, this reflects that, that revelation of himself to Moses. The soldier's response was involuntary. It's what happens in the presence of God. Think about it. I did, you know, I just got thinking, oh, Isaiah 6, yeah, he said that. And Ezekiel and Daniel and John in the book of Revelation, he falls down. When the curtain is lifted, they just fall under the power and the majesty. Now, In biblical narrative, um, sometimes there's there's like stumbling blocks and uh, scandalar scandalum is the word. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago when he said you're all going to scatter, you're going to be scandalized. Remember that? Mm-hmm. So this this is a it's it's a biblical slash literary form and. Uh, so when he said, I am, it was a stumbling block. And when he said it back in John 8, before Abraham was, I am, the Jews, who again, John sees to a large degree the Jewish leaders as a personification of the cosmos, powers that be, the Jews picked up stones to kill him. So it's a stumbling block. Jesus told the disciples they'd be scattered or scandalized. Scandalized. God sometimes confronts and confounds us with a revelation of who he really is. Or a revelation of how he actually works. Um, and, And he challenges our expectations of who he is. And how he acts in our lives. I came from a background, uh, after we came to Christ, more than 40 years ago, a background that, although I didn't have the terminology back then, I realized later was very um, Calvinist. And it has a very strong, I would say almost hyper-sovereignist edge to it. That God's in control of everything all the time. Um... And he he lives by his word. It used to be, God cannot violate his word as if this is God. And I've told you before, no, this is the scriptures. This is a book, which is 
which is our historical narrative of our discovery and journey toward discovering God. So he uses scandal, surprise, to begin to adjust our worldview. Verse 8, he says to them, if you're looking for me, that's fine, but let these men go. Once again, he is in control. Think about it. There are 600 soldiers. They're armed. He's standing there alone. He says, okay, if you're looking for me, fine. But I'm telling you, you let those guys go. Oh, okay. <laughs> John 10, 18. Jesus said he would lay down his life for the sheep. And John's showing us that Jesus is true to his word. So he uses his authority to keep the disciples safe. John is reminding us Jesus truly is the good shepherd, not just for these 12, but for all who would follow him. 600 soldiers are powerless when his true identity is revealed. So this is really important as we go through this narrative that we don't lose touch of this. It is only Jesus' consent that allows them to proceed with what they think is their plan. This is the hour that God had planned for his great purpose. Verse 11 and 12. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, Put away your sword. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Uh, Henry Nouwen has a wonderful book, Shall I Drink the Cup or Shall I Not Drink the Cup? So I've got it upstairs, just as an aside, if you want to read a great little devotional book by Henry Nouwen. So why did Peter pick up the sword? Because, even if it was going to cost his life, because Peter had that very night said, even if I have to die with you, I won't desert you. Um, by the way, John is the only one who gives us the name of the servant, Malchus. And we're going to see in verse 26 that that matters. Here's something we learn out of this passage. And we've taught this a few times in different contexts on this Bible study. Jesus and his kingdom are always nonviolent. Not usually nonviolent, but most of the time nonviolent, they are always nonviolent. Jesus told Peter to put his sword away in order to protect Peter. There's 600 soldiers for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. Put your sword down, Peter. He was protecting him. Did you ever think of that? Jesus was fully prepared to drink the cup, and the cup refers to suffering. Do you remember, there's a wonderful passage in Mark chapter 10 where James and John come to Jesus and say, we've got a great idea. When you come into your kingdom, we'd let one of us on the right, one of us on the left. Remember that? Yeah. And it goes to a whole marvelous teaching from there right through to verse 45. But Jesus' initial response to them when they said, we're going to be at your right and your left, he says, ah. he says, but are you able to drink the cup? The cup is always about suffering. Jesus is not immune to suffering. But the cosmos is powerless against him without his consent. That's a lesson we need to get deep into our being. But don't forget, he's not a tame lion. He doesn't, he's not constricted, oh, he can only, he is God. So John is not primarily focused on the narration of events, but on how these events relate to John's overarching theological purposes, which we've been talking about for months. This is why, in this account, as opposed to the synoptics, uh, this is why there seem to be details that are sketchy or even missing. Um, what happened to Judas? He's just gone. What happened to the other disciples? They're just gone. Doesn't even say they all scattered, they're just gone. Um, when Jesus is before Annas uh, and then Caiaphas, 
the, the father-in-law of the high priest, who was the real power behind the throne, and Caiaphas, the high priest. Um, when that happens, it's such a vague account, it's not even really a trial. There's just, there's almost no details there compared to the synoptics. All of this points to the fact that he is a wonderful storyteller, but that's not his main purpose here. It's to reflect uh, on the theological themes. Okay, a couple of final thoughts on the arrest, and then we'll move on. John reveals the power and authority of Jesus in his true identity as I am, right? I am, 600 people fall down. Go ahead and try that sometime, see if they fall down. But his true identity as I am is presented in the context of vulnerability, of weakness, of a refusal to assert himself. This is I am. Isn't that interesting? This week's episode is brought to you by the Impact Nation's Christmas Catalog. By now, you've likely received your copy of the print version of the Christmas catalog. Pour yourself a coffee and sit down for a quick read. The catalog is filled with stories of how Impact Nations is partnering with donors just like you to rescue some of the most vulnerable people in the world. In addition to these inspiring stories, we've got some great gift selections. You can participate in rescuing pregnant teens from the streets or provide skills and business training that will help widows become self-sufficient. Do you want to feed the hungry or provide medicine for the poor? You can do that too. If you'd like to give online, check out our all-new online version of the Christmas catalog at impactnations.com slash Christmas. And now, back to the podcast. Let's talk about Peter's denial. And uh, if you're following along, I'm going to take two passages, 15 to 18 and 25 to 27. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus to the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl, who was the doorkeeper, said to Peter, Aren't you one of this man's disciples? I misread that. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the slaves and the temple police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves. Interesting details, huh? Uh, He paints a wonderful picture, John does. And Peter was standing with them warming himself. Now Simon Peter was standing warming himself. They said to him, you are one of his disciples too, aren't you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's slaves a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Okay, let's go through this. There was another disciple, pretty clearly not one of the twelve, because they were from Galilee. They were from out in the sticks, And uh, this was someone from Jerusalem. This was a person with connections. A person who knew the high priest. But we don't know who it was. Some commentators speculate maybe it was Nicodemus. But we don't know. That seems like it could be a bit of a stretch. But we know it was someone who knew influential people. And someone who knew the high priest. So he was from Jerusalem. Secondly, John tells the story here with skill. He goes back and forth between Jesus and Peter, and then Jesus again, and Peter again, and what's he doing? He is showing the contrast between those two men and the decisions they make. Jesus says, I am. Anybody notice how many times in the passage we just covered? Three times. Verse 4, I think, is it 4, 6, 8, 4, 5, 8? Three times he says, I am. Peter says, I am not. Three times. That's no accident, folks. So is John showing us that Peter, when he says, I am not, is that Peter does not know who he really is? 
he does not know his true self. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. But I want that thought to be in the back of your mind. Fourthly, Peter's failure confirms what Jesus said just a few hours earlier. In John 13, 36 to 38, I want to read it again. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Those words stuck him like a knife, but layered in there. Jesus replied, will you really lay down your life for me? I assure you, a rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Here's a point that I think John wants us to get. Every claim we make about ourselves, of what we can do or what we're going to do, that is based on our perception of our own strength or courage, is hollow, and it will not stand. the end of this episode, Peter simply exits with no further narrative. I think John is stressing now that Peter was the last one and uh, he's alone. Jesus is now facing this great battle with the powers of the cosmos alone. So what's going on with Peter? First of all, Peter is suddenly thrown into his own darkness. Remember the significance of the setting. This whole thing happens in dark. It almost feels supernaturally dark, doesn't it? But he is suddenly thrown into his own darkness. He is so quickly overcome with confusion and fear. It happened fast. Secondly, Peter sees Jesus being confronted by the powers and yet not, yet not defending himself. Instead of recognizing that Jesus is ultimately in control, he interprets what he's seeing as, as weakness. And this does not fit his expectation of the Messiah. Scandalon. You understand? It starts to just shake his whole worldview. Thirdly, John is showing us that Peter was facing significant personal danger. He had attacked the high priest's servant with a sword. And now Peter is kind of hiding in the courtyard, standing around the fire, trying to mix in with everybody else. And an eyewitness, it says a relative of Malchus, of that servant, says, wait a minute, you were with him. I think we're often too hard on Peter. I don't know how many times I've heard it from the pulpit, oh, what was wrong with him that he was afraid of a little servant girl? Well, I think we're being too hard on him because don't forget the 600 soldiers. Fourthly, the pressure on Peter is sudden and intense. And what happens under this intense pressure is his weakness and failure are brutally exposed. It's like he couldn't prepare himself for this. He didn't know this was there. Fifthly, it's not that Peter didn't love Jesus. He loved Jesus. That's established. We're going to get to that in two more chapters. John 21. He loved Jesus. But his ego self, his, what we call the flesh, his old self had not yet died. He thought it had, it hadn't. Because under pressure, what rose up? Self-preservation and a fear to give up his life. And it took that pressure for that to come to the surface. So what can we learn from Peter in this episode? Well, one... There's, here we're seeing another application of the light-dark theme that John uses through this gospel. And it's not just the principalities, powers, and the kingdom of heaven, but it's walking in the light of who we really are, truly are, or 
living in the shadows of who we really aren't. We, we do live out of our false self, our shadow self, and often we don't even realize it. Um, I talked about that when I talked about the compassion of Christ uh, five, six weeks ago. I think every one of us lives out of our shadow self. Um, and we don't even realize it. The third thing we can learn is this. Simply, we are Peter. We, all of us, we're Peter. And when greatly tested, we are confronted with our false or shadow self. God's process begins with bringing us to the light of awareness. That's where it begins. Confrontation with our shadow self is the first step. And it's an invitation from Jesus on the road to both transformation and freedom. Peter faced the profound pain of self-realization. And I think that we instinctively run from this. And we run from it easily. We hide behind denial. Oh, that's not true. Or excuses. That's not my fault. That goes back to Genesis 3, doesn't it? (laughs) Or we hide behind letting ourselves just get distracted or delay. I'm not ready to deal with that yet. I've told you before, what is denied cannot be healed. So over the following days, through a time of great turmoil... Peter's pain was healed, and he discovered his true self by walking in the light. And that led to an entirely different person, right? Changed history. But Peter was saved from the destruction that Judas Iscariot fell into because through the pain, through the tears, through the shame, through all of it, ultimately he faced his darkness, he faced his false self. And he experienced Jesus' love for him. We see that profoundly in John 21. So he went from the false self that looks good, that says, I will lay down my life for you, to a sober realization of his utter inability in his own strength. Like Paul, he could ultimately celebrate in his weakness instead of hiding it. Our ego, our false self, our shadow self is so at a primal level, we are so appalled and terrified by weakness and brokenness that we even create theology and worldviews to deny its existence especially among believers. We get, we just, that's where we get the, I've got the victory. I mean, I'm kind of characterizing that in a broad brush way. But we do not, it's just too terrifying to deeply, deeply face our true self. And so we avoid it. And as I said, I think we even create theologies of avoidance. But, God is revealed in brokenness and weakness. Here's a couple of verses that are well known from Paul. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 2 Corinthians 12.9 and 10 My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul learned that the way everyone learns it. By embracing the cup, the suffering, the breaking down of the false self. And in this narrative, we get to to watch. It's like we're looking over the shoulder and we watch how it happened for Peter. The paradox of the cross is that God triumphs in brokenness. 
let me just ask us a couple of questions just to think about. If God triumphs in brokenness, if the I am revealed himself in weakness and brokenness and vulnerability, then can I see God hidden in the brokenness of others? And secondly, can I discover the miracle of God hidden in my brokenness? So there's some thoughts out of this passage of Peter's denial. It's a rich passage. I encourage everybody to, to really look at it and pray and, and uh, contemplate on these verses. Okay, let's go to the third section, Jesus before Pilate. Uh, starting at verse 28 to 38. We're going to have some longer passages here. Then they, the soldiers, took Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would have uh, been defiled and unable to eat the Passover. Then Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. So Pilate told them, Well, then take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law. But it's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They, they said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, signifying what sort of death he was going to die. Remember earlier in John, if I be lifted up, I will draw a man unto me. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? And he surprises them with the answer of what he's done. He doesn't talk about anything what he's done. He talks about who he is. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. You are a king then? Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king. Jesus never in John's gospel ever calls himself king, by the way. Just an interesting thing. I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is so huge in John. Full of grace and truth. Remember right at the beginning? I think that's... Uh, I think it's 114 or something. 112. What is truth? said Pilate. Okay, let's look at this. John does not present Pilate as a villain or entirely a bad man, but as a weak one. Pilate's caught up in a dilemma, not of his own making. And he wasn't asking for this. The Jews set him up, the Jewish leaders. And uh, he's trying to figure a way out of this mess. You watch him all the way through this. He's just trying to get out of this. He's not interested in this. Through John's gospel, to meet Jesus is to be confronted with themselves. Nicodemus, chapter 3. He meets Jesus. He's confronted with himself. Uh, chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. Um, chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. The blind man. Is he going to believe in and give allegiance to Jesus, or is he going to cave into the religious folks like his parents did? So once again, we see that when Pilate encounters Jesus, he's confronted with himself. Uh, Pilate has political power, but through this narrative, we watch his weakness unfold. It's really interesting that John stresses that uh, it's still dark. This scene is its early morning. Uh, it's a great irony here that the Jewish religious leaders would not enter Pilate's headquarters because they didn't want to defile themselves. It's very ironic. By all standards of the law, they already had. 
the brief passage before this, when he's before Annas and then Caiaphas, it's like a kangaroo court. Takes place at night. There's no defense allowed. There's no witnesses. There's not really any kind of a trial at all in John's account. There's not much of a one in the synoptics, but more than this. It's not even a trial. Pilate doesn't even want to deal with Jesus. But the Jewish leaders force the issue. He says to them, you take him. You take him yourself. But he knew they had no authority to execute. Maybe excommunicate, but not execute. The Jews, technically, in Jewish law, they could stone. Remember John 8, the whole threat with the woman. But, really, by Roman law, it was up to Rome to pass sentence of execution. And Rome executed uh, by means of the cross for non-citizens. You know, they never crucified Romans, just non-citizens. John saw great significance in the crucifixion, involved lifting up Jesus. Even that, I mean, it's the historical fact, but, but there's, there's, this image has got great symbolism in it. That's why he said earlier, if I be lifted up. Um, it's, it's this connection between heaven and earth. John's narrative is continuing in darkness, and it stresses that the powers and the cosmos are completely alienated from God. Verse 37 and 38. Are you a king then? Pilate asked. Will you say that I'm a king? Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Very powerful. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's so thematic in John, both his gospel and his first letter. Um, and then Pilate says famously, right, what is truth? And that's the, that's the climax of this encounter right here is the issue of truth. Now, the question I ask myself often is, what was Pilate's intent when he said, what is truth? <coughs> what was his tone of voice, for example? Uh, was he being sarcastic? Oh, yeah, yeah, what is truth? Mocking him. As the years go by, I think less and less that that's likely. Was he skeptical? Well, how can anybody know the truth? Was it a moment of transparency that reflected his own despair, his own sadness, his own lack of a foundation in truth? And in this whole episode, John is asking, what do we do when we're confronted with the truth? I've told you that for John, the religious forces represent the powers. Pilate does not see Jesus as a threat. So he turns, goes out to the religious guys. He says, I find no grounds for charging him. There's no evidence here. There's no reason. Because of the fear of the crowds and what they might report to Rome, or because of the possibility of an uprising, Pilate acts against the justice that he is in Jerusalem to uphold. Let me say that again. He's there to uphold justice. But because of the pressure, he acts absolutely contrary to justice by Roman law, by all law. So let's go to chapter 19. Everybody still with me? Chapter 19, verses 1 to 4. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and threw a purple robe around him. And those Palestinian thorns were up to four inches long. It's incredible. And they repeatedly came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him outside to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. So, what do we see here? It's really interesting. Pilate compromises. He knows it's not right, but he thinks maybe if I compromise, they'll settle down. But compromise will never satisfy the powers. And the powers are now operating openly through all the people. 
It's like an infection that's just multiplied in the crowd. So he says to them, I find no grounds for charging him. He says it again. And they say, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus didn't give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, you're not talking to me. Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above. That is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate made every effort to release him. But the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you were not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's bench in a place called the Stone Pavement, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover. And the Christian Standard Bible, fairly unique in this, says, and it was about six in the morning. I want you to just know it was way more likely it was the sixth hour, which is noon. Um... Then he told the Jews, here is your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. So then, because of them, he handed him over to be crucified. John is showing us the terrible momentum of darkness. Now the whole crowd is shouting, crucify, crucify. Take him and crucify him yourself. Was when Pilate said that, was he being sarcastic because he knew they didn't have the legal authority? Or are we seeing a truly desperate man who's saying whatever he needs to to try to get out of this situation? I think it's the second one, but we don't know. The second time in this narrative, we see a man under terrible pressure. And then it says that he was now more afraid than ever. Isn't that interesting? So what was the source and the nature of his fear? What was he afraid of? Was he afraid of the crowd? Was he afraid that the crowd, uh, this was going to get to the the soldiers, and then it was going to somehow get back to Rome, and he'd be kicked out, which ultimately, years later, he was, by the way. Um, or, or was it that there, this incredible conflict was going on in him? We saw conflict in Peter, now we see conflict in Pilate, because he had just encountered someone who was like anyone he had ever met, and that encounter made him afraid goes back to maybe how we read what is true. From that moment, Pilate made every effort to release him. So Peter succumbed to self-preservation, and now Pilate does the same thing. He'd encountered Jesus and knew that he was an innocent man. But under the pressure of the crowd, he viewed Christ Then he chose the familiar. He had viewed, he had encountered, he'd spent time, maybe it was a few hours with Christ. But under pressure, he went back to the cosmos. He's afraid of what he is encountering with Jesus, but his greater fear is trouble with Rome. Pilate had two functions to enforce the law and provide justice and to keep the peace. Those are his two main roles as the governor. And when he had to decide under the pressure, he chooses keeping the peace over justice. The powers will do all they can to keep and maintain control. And this often means keeping the peace. Do you know sometimes they don't tell the truth? Mm 
shocking, in order to keep the peace. And we see right here, this man, Pilate, I think had a, a fairly significant encounter with Christ. It went on a long time. It's the longest just in terms of, of volume of words of this whole passion narrative. It's the longest interaction by far. I think his heart's being drawn in. We know in the synoptics, his wife sends a message. I had a terrible dream about this man. Be careful. But in the midst of the powers that be, the pressure of the cosmos, he goes with the familiar. It's interesting because the, the Jewish leaders, they can see Pilate's weakness. They can see his fear. And so they don't even argue about Jesus' guilt. Oh, he did this and this, and he was a blasphemer. They, they don't even bother with that. Instead, they point out to Pilate, you're in danger if the higher Roman authorities get involved. Isn't that interesting? The religious leaders did not raise a religious issue. They said, watch it, or you'll be in trouble with Rome. They said, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. So the momentum of the darkness is now in full force. We hear the cries, take him away, crucify him, crucify him. He says, should I crucify your king? And there's, here's the culmination. The priests say, we have no king but Caesar. For a Jew, this is the ultimate blasphemy. There's not a higher blasphemy. Because God alone is king. So at this point in the narrative, the powers that be, the cosmos, have totally taken control. Darkness is at its climax. So, let's finish with just a little bit of application here. Pilate chose keeping the peace over what he knew was true and just, even though he knew to do so was morally wrong. So here's a question that I was asking myself today. How often have I, I'll put it this way, how often have we refused to follow our conscience that tells us to choose truth and justice, especially for the weak? What stops us? Is it our fear of losing friends? Is it fear of rejection at work or even at our church? Fear is so powerful because fear brings the darkness. We go back to where we started, light and darkness. If truth and light set us free, John 8, 32, then fear and darkness enslave us. So we need to recognize and remember that it is the cosmos, it is the powers that be, it is the world, the spiritual force that pushes against us and in our own lives causes us to say, no, no, I didn't do anything wrong, or I'm fine, in denial, or I'll deal with that later. Or in the world around us, a world filled with injustice. It's the darkness that causes us to be afraid to speak up for truth, to be like Pilate. And rather than holding to truth and what is just, we keep the peace. So we just covered a lot. And this is a very powerful narrative. The, 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 the momentum and acceleration in chapter 18 and 19 are remarkable. I think, you know, in a literary way, it's, it's incredibly crafted. But way more than that, he uses this event to tie us back to these basic issues of light and darkness of the world or Christ. Because we can't serve two masters. And the world always says yes you can. And Jesus never says yes you can.
This has been another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. If you've got questions for us, send them to podcast at impactnations.com. And don't forget to check out the Christmas catalog at impactnations.com slash Christmas. Thanks and have a great week.